0: Welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It's really great to have you here today. Today's conversation is fun, it's reflective, and I feel like it touches on a lot of points that we've never gotten super deep into before. We're speaking with Dr. Kimberly Chrisman Campbell. Kimberly is a fashion historian, a curator, and a journalist based in Los Angeles. She writes about fashion, art, and culture for The Atlantic, Politico, The Wall Street Journal, and she's lectured at museums and universities all over the world. I originally found Kimberly on Twitter and I've been following her for years. She makes such thoughtful, cool, smart commentary on modern fashion and then also curates a page worn on this day. She's someone I love to follow. She's someone I love to learn from. And I'm so excited to be bringing y'all this conversation today, especially in the context of her upcoming book, Skirts, Fashioning Modern Femininity in the 20th Century. I had the very distinct pleasure of reading Skirts before this conversation with Kimberly, and I really deeply enjoyed it because I've never read something that's a social history through fashion pieces. It's a really beautiful, illustrated account of how women and women's roles in society have shifted over the 20th century, and it's told through different kinds of skirts and dresses. Kimberly and I do talk about some of the skirts and dresses mentioned in the book through the lens of social history, and I feel like we talked about so much. We start off our conversation talking about 18th century fashion, which is where Kimberly really got her scholarly start. We talk about the royals. We talk about wedding dresses. We talk about the modern woman. We talk about supermodels. I feel like there's so much social commentary that can be more deeply understood through this lens of fashion. And it was seriously so, so much fun to record this conversation. Skirts will be released on September 6th, so you keep an eye out for that. And I hope you really deeply enjoy this conversation. Like I said, it was a lot of fun. It was really educational. It was really valuable. And it was one where I could talk about any of these specific women or clothing items in a reflective sense for hours and hours with Kimberly. She is so knowledgeable, so smart, and really warm and welcoming in the way that she educates. So I know that you will really enjoy this too. If you do, you can subscribe to this show wherever you're listening today. Eco Chic is on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Google Play, wherever you want to find me. That's where I am. All of my social links are in the show notes. You can find me on Instagram, on TikTok. And you can always email me if you want to get in touch or if you have a suggestion for a future episode. You can rate and review the show. You can share it on your Instagram story. Share it in the group chat. Let me know what you want to hear about next. And with that, let's get into today's conversation about modern femininity through the lens of clothing. Enjoy our conversation with Dr. Kimberly Chrisman Campbell. Kimberly, welcome to Eco Chic. How are you? Fine, thanks, Laura. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. Before we even get into our deep conversation today... I would love to talk to you a little bit about your relationship with fashion and how you got into this space, because I feel like there is no better dream job out there for a young girl (laughs) that is fashion scholar. How'd you get into it?
1: Well, I've been fascinated with historic fashion uh, for longer than I can remember. I mean, since I was very young, I I didn't really know what to do with that, though. I thought, do I want to be a fashion designer? Do I want to go into theater? I mean, I love going to historic sites like Colonial Williamsburg, you know, Stratford-upon-Avon. I was fascinated by historic reenactment and and books on fashion. Uh, it wasn't until my senior year of college, though, that I realized I could actually do that as a job. And it was through a, a history class on material culture where I got to pick any object in the 18th century and write about it. And I thought, well, obviously I want to do the hoop petticoat. And through that research, discovered, hey, there are graduate schools where I can go and and study this, and there are museums where I could go and work. I mean, I'd been to costume museums. I knew they existed, but it had never occurred to me that you could study uh, to get that job. So as soon as that clicked for me, uh, that was my mission in life.
0: I love that. And I love this hoop petticoat assignment because you were like, obviously I'm going to choose the hoop petticoat. I think that really speaks to your affinity for this.
1: I couldn't believe my luck that I was able to actually write a paper on that. And I had a great professor who was 100% behind that. And uh, as you can see, I'm still writing about skirts. was so that was my first ever uh, fashion scholarship. And I am still obsessed <laughs> with the idea of big poofy skirts.
0: Well, I feel like that's a great place to start our conversation today about relationships that women have with fashion. Looking at 18th century fashion, we know that from a consumption perspective, from an economic perspective, women looked at their clothing very differently than we do today. So could we speak to that a little bit? What was the average woman's relationship, I suppose, with her closet during the 18th century?
1: Well, one reason I love the 18th century is because it's sort of the last pre-industrial age where you still had hand woven, hand-spun fibers, um, hand-sewn garments. You know, there were no sewing machines, there were no mechanical looms, everything was a hand loom. And what they achieved using those, to us, fairly primitive tools uh, was just incredible. But of course, people had much less clothing back then, especially if you were poor, you might have just a couple of outfits, you know, one for Sunday best and one for the working week, which included Saturdays. If you were very wealthy, you might have a lot of clothes, but they were all made of natural fibers. And th- this, I think, is something that's really hard to appreciate in a day when we have all kinds of man-made fibers at our disposal, and where fashion is very cheap because it. Because of course, if you're wearing wool and linen and cotton, it's going really to cost a lot more than you know that polyester, you know, sundress you bought at Target, and, and for good reason. That's another piece of the puzzle, too, is that people spent a lot much more on clothing proportionally than we do today. Even if you were poor, you'd be wearing high-quality clothing that you probably bought secondhand or something that you wove and made yourself. The 18th century also had a thriving retail market that would put eBay to shame. There were old-clothes dealers, old-clothes fairs. They were sold in the streets. And so even if you're very poor, you were wearing high quality clothing. It had just been worn by three or four other people before you got a hold of it at some retail or resale
0: outlet. Something that I'd love to touch on a little bit that I know you also have an interest in is wedding gowns. And what does it mean to rewear a wedding gown and how relationships with wedding gowns have changed or not changed over time?
1: Yes, I read a book on wedding gowns in, in 2020, The Way We Wed. And I was somewhat surprised to learn that wedding gowns were really the original vintage fashion because they're something that have always been passed down and reworn by by descendants of the original wearer or perhaps shared among people. Uh, for example, during World War II, I found a lot of wedding gowns that had been worn by twelve or 13 brides because they just couldn't get a, a new one at that time uh, because fabric was so hard to get a hold of. And of course, people also got really creative in terms of making wedding gowns out of Parachutes during the war, or paper because they couldn't afford the, the real silk and satin ones. Uh, so a lot of creativity and and sentiment went into wedding gowns that I think we still see today. I mean, my my favorite pandemic weddings, for example, uh, were Princess Beatrice. She remodeled a, a gown that her grandmother, the Queen, had worn. There was another one, Eunice Kennedy's granddaughter, that had a Dior ball gown that had belonged to her her grandmother remade into her wedding dress. And I just thought that was such a very beautiful and meaningful way to create a sense of continuity and a sense of spectacle at a time when weddings were actually very small and limited. You couldn't have a, a big wedding, but you could sort of have your family with you through the gown.
0: Wow. That's a really beautiful way to frame your earlier statement of wedding gowns being the original vintage fashion, because they were intended to be passed down. They were intended to be essentially like passed around a community if you're buying it secondhand.
1: They're also intended to be reworn. Of course, you know, the white yes. getting sweating down is a relatively recent phenomenon. And even in the 19th century, when it became popular, women wore them again as evening wear. They, they didn't just wear it once. That's an entirely modern phenomenon that I, I wish we could get away from. <laughs>
0: I was just going to say, yeah, it's really funny that now we think of wedding gowns as something you're wearing one day and never again for the rest of your life or hanging in your closet and maybe your daughter might want it. It's a very different relationship we have with a single garment that a lot of women hold in extremely high regard.
1: I pay a lot of money for.
0: Pay a lot of money for. Well, I mean, speaking of money and speaking of resale markets... I feel like uh, we spoke a little bit earlier about this concept of investing in your clothing during the 18th century because you were just going to have one really high quality thing that was going to last you for a really long time. And that is such a stark difference from what we see today. At what point did women start shifting that relationship with fashion of, I don't need just one thing. I want multiple things. I don't want people to see me re-wearing things. I want a different outfit for every day of the week.
1: Well, that began to come in with the industrial revolution because clothing got much cheaper. It was no longer hand-sewn and hand-woven. You could afford to have more clothes and it's understandable that people jumped on board with that and started consuming with a passion and and your clothing became an expression of your wealth and your status. Not that it hadn't been before, but it was you were able to do much more with that and be, be much more Creative with that. Of course, the sewing machine meant you could put on more trimmings, more ruffles, more layers. You could afford more fabric because it was getting cheaper because of industrialized weaving. So, if you look at the crinoline gowns and the bustles of the 19th century, you could see that in action, the, this te- new technologies that made fashion more affordable and not just fashion, but the actual textiles and trimmings that went, went into it.
0: Yeah. I didn't really realize the role the Industrial Revolution played in. The fashion industry. For some reason, we always put it in this context of cars and smokestacks and all of these really heavy industrial imageries pop into our head. But it had a really significant impact on the day to day consumer. And that's how we get to the fashion industry as we know it today and how it eventually rolled into what we know today.
1: That's right. And we have a similar shift when, for example, man made textiles or uh, man made textile fibers became available, polyester and things like that, that made it possible to make even cheaper textiles and clothing.
0: I'm glad you mentioned polyester because I would love to switch gears a little bit and get into your book skirts. I really deeply enjoyed reading skirts and I really deeply enjoyed specifically the chapter on wrap dresses. Mm. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the wrap dress. From my perspective, the wrap dress was an item that was really revolutionary when it first came out. Women loved it. And then we saw it back and forth and back and forth between consumers and the fashion industry going through different changes in textiles, in production styles, in the way that it was marketed. And I feel like the wrap dress is such an interesting way to think about women, clothing, their role in the workplace even, and all of these sort of social commentary factors that circle around what women wear. So I know that was a little loaded. Let's talk about the inception. Where was the first wrap dress? What was such the big deal? Well, I think
1: we all automatically think of Dionne von Furstenberg, the 1974 wrap dress that became this prototype for the working woman's uniform and has been imitated ever since, including by von Furstenberg herself. She, she brought it back. The current wrap dress that you can buy online or, you know, in stores is Actually, not much like the original. The fabric has changed to a silk jersey from a a cotton jersey. The cut has changed a lot. Uh, We think of it as this timeless, iconic garment, but it's actually not really the same 70s garment that made such a splash at the time. And of course, wrap dresses were not invented in 1974. They go way back. Charles James made what he called the taxi dress, uh, which was a wrap dress slightly different cut from the von Furstenberg wrap dress, but really similar concept, something you could put on and get out of really easily. And in fact, that's where the name taxi dress came from. There are a few different explanations of why he called it that. But I, I think the one that to me makes the most sense is that it was as easy to get in and out of as a taxi.
0: Quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, Dame. Here's the deal. Having a pleasure practice is good for you. It can improve the quality of your sleep, help you de-stress, relieve pain, and give you that lit from within glow as you go about your day. But most importantly, exploring pleasure on your own helps you get in touch with yourself and learn more about what you like. So check out Air, the suction vibrator from Dame Products. Air is a powerful arousal tool for fans of oral stimulation. Or if you're looking to share pleasure, Dame Products has also designed Eva, the first hands-free vibrator for couples. Boost pleasure and connection with a little toy that won't get in the way. Designed to enhance, not distract from pleasure, Eva is your sex life's new best friend. And whether you go with Air or Eva or both, Dame Products also has sex oil, an all-natural full-body massage oil formulated with arousing ingredients that you should definitely check out. The best part is that Dame offers hassle-free returns within 60 days, so satisfaction is literally guaranteed. Go to dameproducts.com and use code ECOCHIC today for 15% off site-wide. That's ECOCHIC to take 15% off your first order at dameproducts.com. I'll have the link and code in the show notes. Now back to our combo. I
1: The popover dress by Claire McArdle was a a very different kind of wrap dress that came out in in the 40s and was really a house dress designed for sort of doing housework. And in fact, it had a pocket designed to hold a potholder in it. So this is a dress that can go from the office to the kitchen uh, to the taxi. It's a very versatile style that can be dressed up or dressed down and is pretty much universally flattering as well. Von Firstberg touted the fact that this didn't wrinkle. You could throw it in a suitcase. It was perfect for a woman on the go. And you could, you know, put on hot heels and wear it out to dinner after work. So it really was all things to all people. And I think that's why it's still with us, um, you know, a hundred years after Charles James made one.
0: I like that the wrap dress had such a focus on this sort of day to night that you could wear it to work and then you could be going out to dinner afterwards because this is such a shift from the woman in the workplace sort of vision we have in our head of kind of I'm thinking of mad men of like <laughs> this sort of this woman who's just there to not necessarily climb that same corporate ladder and the wrap dress is so powerful because it is both professional and sexy it is both workwear and outer everyday wear. It is, like you said, it's everything to everyone. And the wrap dress in my head, especially reading it in the context of all of these other garments of your book, really marked a time where women had a different sort of power than they had previously in the economy.
1: And and that's certainly true of the 70s. That wasn't true of the 1940s wrap dress, though. That was a house dress that you popped over what you were wearing to keep it clean while you did housework. Our definition of what these dresses are changes over time. That's why the book is called Skirts, because skirts was, of course, a term applied to women themselves. So when we say skirts, we're talking about a garment, but we're also talking about a woman. And the definition of what a woman does and is changes over the course of the 20th century just as fashions do.
0: I feel like that's a really romantic way to look at garments, too, because there's this level of almost... I don't want to call it frivolousness, but there's something that women are labeled for caring about what they wear. Wow. And that sucks, first of all. But I feel like with this retrospective look at skirts quite literally and how women are approached in these scenarios over time, it really gives a lot of context to history. I mean, there was also a lot of notion, especially in the chapter on mini skirts, which I loved of this return to youthfulness, of playfulness, of returning back to this very pure sense of self during a time of uncertainty, during a time of economic turmoil. And it's so interesting to pair this perspective with how women were reacting again in this larger consumer economy.
1: Yeah, I always think it's fascinating to go back to the original sources, you know, writing about miniskirts in the 60s, They had a very different perspective on miniskirts than we would today when we think it was something very sexy, very powerful. We think of maybe the 80s supermodels and their short skirts and their tight dresses and their high heels. That's not what the miniskirt was in the 60s. It it was about youth. It was about looking like a little girl. You know, they, they were always worn with flats, never heels. They were worn with tights most of the time, so you didn't even see the legs. So there's a lot of baggage that has been added to these fashions over time because they have been with us for so long that wasn't necessarily there in the beginning. So with each chapter, I wanted to go back to sort of the, the beginning of where this style came from and how it has changed over time.
0: Yeah, you touched on something that I'd love to explore a little further around mini skirts and now associating them with looking sexy. There was also a similar, but also dissimilar conversation around the naked dress and the bondage dress, or what we know now as the body con dress. And I'd love to talk a little bit about those sorts of pieces and how relationships with them have changed over time, because in my limited view, it sounds like they have much shorter histories with us compared to other pieces.
1: Well, the naked dress actually has a pretty long history, but it was one that began as sort of a green siren or a Las Vegas sort of showgirl before changing in some really interesting ways. I mean, the term naked dress came from sex in the city. That doesn't mean the naked dress came from there. I mean, because these dresses were around Marilyn Monroe's famous dress that now Kim Kardashian has made even more famous, for example, was a naked dress. It wasn't called that at the time. It was called an illusion dress. In fact, in the 1930s, a naked dress meant a strapless dress, any strapless dress. So the terminology has changed over time, just as the styles have. But the term naked dress goes back to sex in the city. And if you look at that dress she's wearing, it doesn't look anything like a naked dress we would call a naked dress today. It's a mini skirt. It's sort of a slip dress in this sort of ace bandage putty color that doesn't match anybody's skin. But it was dubbed in the show, the naked dress. And Sarah Jessica Parker also wore it on the red carpet. So it had its red carpet moment as well as its television moment. But it was not a body-conscious, transparent dress that you might see, you know, Rihanna or Kim Kardashian or Jennifer Lopez wearing on the red carpet in any sense. Yet now that is what a naked dress means. Interesting. What about the body-con dress? At the body-con dress as well. You know, there have always been body-con dresses. There there was a famous scandal at the Longchamp races in Paris at the turn of the century when models turned up in these very clingy dresses. That again, we're not called bodycon at the time, but were notorious because they showed the figure in a way that hadn't been seen before. I frame the bodycon dress as a product of the 80s. Again, the supermodels, the fitness movement, the body is the accessory. Now you don't wear a corset, you don't wear a girdle, you have the musk butcher to support the dress, which then shows off the internal structure of the body in a way that was very new and was also showing a lot of skin and limbs too, as well as being very tight and and very stretchy. Again, we're going back to technology, the spandex technology, the, the bandage dress technology that really both showed off and kind of supported the body.
0: Yeah, there's an interesting theme here, especially compared to what we spoke about earlier about the wrap dress, women in the workplace, this sort of newfound economic power. And when you're comparing that to something In similar time periods, let's say in the 80s, early 90s, of bondage, dresses, naked dresses, power is very different. And this is a woman who is now experiencing a different kind of social freedom than we have seen previously. And by the same token, talking about the popularity of these items and kind of the social acceptance surrounding them has a lot to say about feminism, our consumer economy. It really speaks deeply to how the social structure of America especially was changing during that time.
1: Well, and this is the same era as the power suit with the big shoulder pad. So it's all about making women look big and strong. We're talking about supermodels being not just very beautiful, but very tall, you know, wide shoulders. I, they they look strong, they look powerful. They were wearing these bodycon dresses with amazing high-heeled shoes and other accessories, you know, the big hair that really sort of enhanced the presence of the woman in them, even though they're often kind of dismissed as, well, they're just sexy or they're, you know, their little black dresses. They actually contributed to an image of power and domination in many cases.
0: I think that's so interesting. I recently watched the uh, Hulu documentary on Victoria's Secret. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but it was a really fascinating take on like the impact of supermodels and what it meant for of course, the fashion industry, but more broadly the social structure of the Western world, both the pressures and the successes of these models on influencing women. Yeah, it was just it was a really hot take. It's the era sorry. of the
1: wonder bra as well. And and you know, making everything look bigger and higher than it was
0: before. Yeah. And there's sort of an interesting split where you can say this is a moment of female empowerment, this is a moment of women really taking charge of their bodies and showing up the way they want to. But it's also a moment where women are being hypersexualized, exploited by the consumer economy. And you can't look at all of these successes of women, I suppose, as a whole of these, these feats that we have of freedom of sexual liberation of all of these wonderful things, without also thinking that there are some kind of nefarious puppeteers in the room.
1: Well, I think looking back, it's easy to say, "Well, this was just soft porn," or this, you know, "This was not power. This was just using sex as power." And from a modern perspective, yes, we would probably not define power in that way. But at the time, it was very revolutionary. And again, if you go back to what women were saying at the time, what newspaper were saying at the time, what Vogue was saying at the time, what designers were saying at the time, and, and compared to what had gone before, I think you do see this evolution. Of what it meant to be powerful, what it meant to be sexy, what it meant to be a woman. That perhaps we've now evolved past. Let's put it
0: that way. Yeah. Well, that also makes me think of a comment you made earlier about Sex in the City and the naked dress. And Sex in the City is also credited with the popularization of the Fendi baguette, which I always think is so fascinating a bag that was repackaged over and over. And it's not necessarily anything special, but it was the first true novelty bag that we saw popularized. And women during this time period of the 80s and early 90s are now finally having fun with fashion in a way that they haven't in such a public and widespread way. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that shift of when was it that women were really starting to experience fashion purely for pleasure rather than I need to feel powerful in the workplace or I need something to pop over while I'm doing my housework.
1: I, I think I think pleasure and fashion have always been very closely intertwined. Although again, what that means changes a lot over time. Sex and the City also, I think, gave us the myth of the massive expensive shoe collection <laughs> as being the mark of a fashionista. In fact, I was asked to do an essay for a museum catalog that came out in London about uh, shoes and they said, "Oh well, would you write about Marie Antoinette's shoe collection? I mean, she was she was such a fashionista; she must have had this enormous shoe collection." And that really wasn't a thing in the 18th century. I, I think we we got that from Sex in the City, this idea, and, and Imelda Marcos, of course, that you know a true fashionista just has a closet full of hundreds of pairs of shoes. Not that shoes couldn't be beautiful and covetable and you could have a lot of them, but it, it was not really the same bellwether of fashion love, being a fashion lover. In fact, in the 18th century, you did not usually see a woman's shoes because she was wearing a long skirt. So as fashions change, the idea of what constitutes fashionability changes as well. Just as the, the wrap dress in the 40s was not a fashion moment so much as it was in the 70s.
0: Interesting. That's a. Good take, especially this context of Marie Antoinette not necessarily being the same sort of fashionista that Carrie Bradshaw was. The relationships that women had with fashion were so vastly different that it is extremely difficult to qualify them both as the same category, I suppose.
1: But well, we saw this in the Sofia Coppola Marie Antoinette movie as well. Yes. That you, it, the camera sort of panned past her wonderful, you know, cake-like shoe collection I had a very hard time finding a portrait of Marie Antoinette where you could actually see her shoes to illustrate that article. Several of her shoes have survived though, interestingly enough. And I think it's because they are small and they're portable and they're very collectible in in their own right. But it wasn't really her shoe collection that made her, you know, a fashion legend.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Well, I have to ask now, perhaps it is Marie Antoinette, but who is your favorite historical fashion icon?
1: I have always been fascinated by the Duchesse de Chartres, who was Marie Antoinette's sort of fashion influencer. You know, royal figures are always fascinating and well documented, but at the same time, they do not have the freedom and the budget to dress as wildly and creatively and as much over the top as a private citizen would. So the Duchesse de Chartres actually introduced Marie Antoinette to her dressmaker and really was a sort of fashion mentor to her and was. You know, the richest and most stylish woman in Paris, in Marie for that time.
0: That's so interesting. And I like what you mentioned about royals not necessarily having the same sort of budget and freedom that the average consumer may. And I think very often of Kate Middleton as this unexpected sustainable fashion icon who loves to rewear things, oh. who is styled and things very similarly often. She's always in these kind of coat dresses. Right. She has a very standard kind of jewel-toned wardrobe for any sort of traveling, for any sort of events, and I never really think deeply about Kate Middleton's style, but once I do, I'm like, wow, this woman is kind of like an unexpected sustainability icon because it's always the same thing but a little bit different.
1: Yes, and I love the way she dresses. I would not call her a fashion
0: Oh, uh, no, she's, a she's not. A, anyway? No, 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 not at all.
1: A fashion influencer, perhaps, you know, because of her position, because she is so widely photographed and like Princess Diana. I mean, if, if you're writing a history of fashion in the 80s, Princess Diana would not be in there as a maverick. But of course, she is a very widely imitated, widely influential figure, but she's not Isabella Blow, for example. Um, And that's because she is a member of the royal family, was a member of the royal family, could not, you know, wear John Galliano to every event. Uh, She had to dress within a certain set of expectations and did it very well and certainly was influential um, because of her fame and because of her popularity. But again, that's not the same thing as being a fashion innovator. Um, And I would say the same thing about Marie Antoinette. She was a follower rather than a leader in fashion.
0: Interesting. I like that you mentioned Princess Diana not necessarily being a ultra fashionable person of her time, especially just given, again, these constraints of living in the royal family and living in this public eye. There was one mention of Princess Diana that I thought was really wonderful, and that was of the little black dress
1: and Mm -hmm. the revenge
0: dress. Princess Diana did this really interesting thing where she used fashion as a means to kind of play with the media. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: One of my favorite stories around her, I want to talk about the revenge dress in a minute. One of my favorite stories I have to share was that she was gifted this sweatshirt from, I want to say it was Virgin Airlines. And she wore this Virgin Airlines sweatshirt for days on end so that when she would be paparazzi'd, it always looked like the same photo because she was always wearing the same thing. And it kind of devalued all of this media attention that she was getting in her daily life. And I love that story because that's clearly like her playing the game of the media. And the revenge dress was very similar. It was so strategic. It was so direct without her ever having to say anything.
1: Of course. And political women, prominent women, royal women have been doing this for centuries because they don't have a voice. In government, always, or the media, or you know, the military, but they they can speak through their clothes because they are on display and they are photographed or they are written about based on what they're wearing, and they use that to their advantage. That reminded me what you just said about Princess Diana and the, the Virgin's sweatshirt, of, about Kate Middleton, and when she attends weddings, she will often rewear something so she doesn't steal the spotlight, or if she's going to an event where. You know, it's not really about her. I think for some of the Jubilee events, for example, she rewore things because she didn't want to be the story. She didn't want to be analyzed for what she was wearing. It's like, oh, it's that thing she wore that other time. And that's a great way to get the media off your back and not be the star of whatever event you're going to, letting the bride or the, the guest of honor take precedence because you're not creating a new fashion story by design.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting contradiction to, again, the revenge dress or that Virgin Airlines sweatshirt. This is an opportunity for Kate Middleton to step back and be very intentional about her place in the room and respectful of her place in the room. So I like this sort of, again, very strategic use of fashion without really having to say anything.
1: And yeah, the phrase "pantomime politics is sometimes used to describe this idea of Dressing for the occasion, but also dressing strategically. So you're sending a message to support whatever cause or point you're trying to make that day. You know, wearing green on St. Patrick's Day, for example, is something you know people all over the world do, but certainly the royals do when they're going to a St. Patrick's Day event.
0: Of course. Of course, that's a really great example. I would love to switch gears a little bit and zoom us in to today's day and age, and the relationship that women have with fashion today, it's interesting to me and also very difficult to decipher if even my own relationship or the relationship of women as a whole, how much of that is dictated by our personality, how much of that is dictated by our, again, just normal things like social standing, our budget, but also how much are we being fed by this (laughs) capitalist society? So I'd love to talk a little bit about your perspective. I know you're quite outspoken on this subject around micro trends, around what we're encouraged to buy for whatever reason today, and how relationships with fashion have changed for women over time.
1: I think as a historian, I have a somewhat unique perspective on this. I mean, I'm still wearing clothes I bought 20, 25 years ago. Not to say I'm not buying new clothes as well, because I am. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not a believer in the, the capsule wardrobe or the um, slow fashion movement. Although I, I try to be responsible in my purchases, I absolutely continue to buy clothes and also continue to wear things that I've had for years. I buy things that I can wear for 10 years because I think it's the right thing to do. I think it also I feel like kind of a chump if I'm buying something that I know is going to go out of style in six months or a year. So I think if you shop with that perspective that you you know no matter how cheap it is or how expensive it is I need to be able to wear it five years from now that's helpful in avoiding some of the more flash and pan trends and and the things that are really just designed to make you money I mean not not that any of us want the fashion industry to go out of business because they can't sell new clothes but let challenge them to do better and make make things that are worth having and worth keeping
0: Last question I have for you. I'm sure you get this question all the time, being a fashion historian and looking at cyclical trends. What is the one thing you think a woman has in her closet that will never go out of style?
1: You know, this is a great question, and it's it's one I ask my students because if you think about the things, you know, what's been in your closet for five years or more, for example, it's not often the things you wore every day. It tends to be things that are there for sentimental reasons, like like a wedding dress or you know, a letterman jacket, something you wore on your first date, maybe with your husband. We keep things and things that things then end up in museums because they've been kept for reasons that aren't necessarily tied to their fashionability. Often the, the the fashionable things, the things we really love to wear, we wore till they fell apart and then we got rid of them. They don't survive as much. However, I think the exception to that would be like a great pair of cowboy boots or a leather jacket, something that's really going to last forever and Not go out of style, or if it does go out of style, maybe come back into style a few years later. It's funny to look at these skirts because often the skirt hemline would change. So it would be the same skirt, but you could alter it. And I think if you're able to sew, that's kind of a prerequisite for sustainability because it means you can fix and you can alter things as your body changes or as fashions change. I've definitely got things in my closet, the wrap dress that I've had since I was 19 and still wear.
0: So the takeaway is high quality and be able to manipulate it to your body over time.
1: I, I wouldn't even say high quality. I think um, natural fibers, maybe, uh, okay. which often, often correlates with high quality, but not necessarily. Um, yeah. I've, I've definitely bought things that weren't very expensive, but have, have lasted forever. Um, fit, in the 18th century, most things Custom made. I mean, virtually everything was custom made. So fit wasn't really an issue until, of course, you bought it secondhand or thirdhand and it wasn't custom made for you. So I, I would say, you know, buy, buy natural fibers, buy things that fit, buy things that are not going to go out of style in one or two seasons. And yeah, just enjoy it. I, I love to shop. I appreciate the noddry everybody does, but I think you're better off in something that fits you, fits your lifestyle, and that you love to wear than whatever Vogue is telling you to wear.
0: That's a good tip. I like that a lot. Just kind of separate as much as you can from the trends.
1: Yeah, well, and know what works on you. You know, know know what styles look good on you. Know which colors work for you. I, I'm constantly looking at things and about to buy them. And I realize, oh, I, I actually have this. <laughs> I have something exactly like this. Uh, because I know what I like and I, I'm, I'm pretty consistent with it.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. I feel similarly where I know what flatters my body and what I'm comfortable mm-hmm. with, and even something like a neckline. Like I'm a square neck kind of mm-hmm. girl. Oh yeah, I'm a V neck. <laughs> yeah, and a V neck just doesn't look good on me. I don't. I don't know what it is, but I just am not comfortable in a V neck. And when I feel pressured to buy something, the neckline is what I check. I mean, it doesn't have to be a square neck, but you know, if it doesn't fall into my general realm of things I know I already like. I'm not going to spend my money on it. I'm never going to reach for it.
1: Yeah. And I, I think if you know how to sew as well, you you know what you can fix and what you can't. I mean, some some things you can like, okay, if I if I gain weight or if I lose weight, I, I can make this work. Even if you're not the one who does the tailoring, you know, at least you, you, when you buy it, you're a little bit aware of, yes, this is something that I can work with over the years.
0: Um, know your body and know your style.
1: Yeah. Or, or you know, this this headline's too long for me, but I can make it shorter. Um, Love that. Also, uh, knowing fabric, this is something I think that fashion historians are very good at. I'm not saying fashion historians are universally well-dressed because they're not. And you know, if you work in a museum, you're definitely not getting paid enough to afford the kind of clothes you want. Um, but I will say that fashion historians are big textile snobs. And we really like natural fibers. We, we will buy something for the textile um, because we really just appreciate a good textile and Again, people who so they know how a textile is going to wash, if it's going to fall apart in the wash, if it's going to pill, if it's going to stretch out. Things like this, you learn over time and they, they can really help you focus your shopping and focus your wardrobe on things that are going to last and that are
0: going to look good for a long time. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Kimberly Chrisman Campbell, author of Skirts fashion historian extraordinaire. Like I said at the top of the episode, this was so much fun to record and to learn from Kimberly. And I hope y'all really enjoyed it as well. If you did, let me know you can rate and review the show. You can subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast, wherever you're listening right now. Send it in the family group chat. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on these conversations. And I feel like also there was so much really great visual description in this conversation, be it the wedding dresses, be it the royals, the wrap dress over time. And I will be going ahead and sharing some of the visuals and little snippets of this episode on social media. So you can find all of my links in the show notes as well. With that, thanks so much for hanging out today. Thanks so much for listening. And I look forward to hanging out with you next week. Bye.